Quarks are fermions that have an additional quantum number called color, which can be which can take three values. Imagine three quarks are in a state whose wave function is a product of spatial spin and color. If the color wave function is anti-symmetric under the interchange of two quarks and the spin wave function is symmetric under the interchange of two quarks, is the spatial wave function symmetric or anti-symmetric? And obviously it's, well, not obviously, it's symmetric. So the wave function is the product of Spatial wave function, spin wave function, color wave function. Under interchange, this one's anti-symmetric, so it gets a minus sign. This one's symmetric, so it gets a plus sign. Since they're fermions, this whole thing has to be minus. So if I multiply minus 1 times plus 1, I've got minus 1. So that means this has to be plus 1, so it has to be symmetric. I thought it was going to be an easy question. Yeah. Okay. Now it's an easy question. Right. The book claims that the Pauli exclusion principle is not a weird ad hoc assumption because it's really just a consequence of equation 510. But how did anyone know to put a negative sign in equations of fermions? Uh, so <coughs> quantum mechanics would just say that there's two possibilities. It could be plus or minus, right? Um, couldn't we say that the negative sign is there because of the Pauli exclusion principle? So the Pauli exclusion principle is just a special case where the wave functions are the same, so that this minus that, when this equals that, equals zero. So in general, that the Pauli exclusion principle wouldn't tell you about the minus sign. So it's just a special case. The symmetrization does the symmetrization requirement follow from equation 510, or is 510 a result of the symmetrization requirement? So 510 was just a special case of that general. In general, interchange can have two eigenvalues, plus or minus one. Because if you interchange it and then change it back, you haven't done anything. So the eigenvalues have to square to one, so there's only two possibilities. Um, the related question right now, why does it take relativistic quantum theory to prove exclusion principle or the anti-symmetrization. So if quantum mechanics was just mathematics, it would be perfectly fine for bosons to have anti-symmetric wave functions and fermions to have symmetric wave functions. Because quantum mechanics by itself, interchanging things and anti-symmetrizing has nothing to do with the spin. You could do it separately and do it whatever way you wanted if it was just mathematics. But when you do experiments, you find that fermions always have anti-symmetrized wave functions. Bosons always have symmetrized wave functions. And the only way you can derive that is understanding by imposing that things have to be relativistically invariant too. And then you're not free to uh, play with these interchange properties and spin separately. They get tied together. So the short answer is, in quantum mechanics, you can't explain this. So that's why it's an extra assumption. But if you put in relativity plus quantum mechanics and you get quantum field theory, then you can derive this, that fermions always are anti-symmetrized and bosons are always symmetrized. So for this course, it's just an experimental fact that when you deal with fermions, they're always anti-symmetrized. That's what we find in experiment. And you can't understand that until you get to graduate school. You can't understand it in the sense of deriving it from some basic principle. Okay? Another one, equation 510 is seemingly pulled out of thin air and the explanations are pretty thin as well. Why can we assume that a wave function for two particles is represented this way? So, again, there are two possible eigenvalues for interchange, and we're just going to take it as an experimental fact that fermions are always anti-symmetrized, bosons are symmetrized. How does the exchange force, a geometric con consequence of the equation, manifest as a real force? So, 
the way you see that it's a force is that you can see that electrons, you measure out their wave functions by measuring their positions over and over again. You can see that they can be either repelled or attracted depending on the, well, electrons would be repelled by the exchange force. Um, if the question is, how does it actually make a force that pushes the electrons apart? Uh, the answer is that when you think about forces in quantum mechanics, what's happening is that there are interferences between two different things. So it's the interference effect that's canceling. There's two ways an electron could get, or many ways an electron could get to one particular place. But the interference is destructive in the middle where it's being repelled from. And it's constructive further out. How close together must electrons be so that their wave functions are overlapping and the Pauli exclusion principle applies? So the Pauli exclusion principle is only applying, excluding them when the wave functions are the same. And then it's saying it's zero. So Pauli exclusion is just a special case of the general anti-symmetrization. So if they're in different, if there are two different wave functions that you're anti-symmetrizing positions of an electron in, then however much they overlap tells you what region they're excluded from partially. So that could be anything. It's only when the two wave functions you're anti-symmetrizing in the states in are identical that you get zero. According to the reading question, one, quarks have an additional quantum number called color. What does this quantum number tell us? Um, so it's called color in quotes because it's got nothing to do with color. It's just a mnemonic. Your TV works on red, green, and blue. And there were three things. And they had a limited imagination. Of, it's like calling quantized intrinsic angular momentum spin. So it tells you about this quantum number that you can only uh, see if you probe inside a proton or a neutron or a pion. Um, you guys want a better answer than that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it, it's got to do with the forces between the quarks. So in the electrodynamics, there are positive and negative charges. So there's really one type of charge, and then it could be plus or minus. This is a generalization of that, where there are three types of charges, and then they can be the opposites of those three charges. So to make something neutral, in electrodynamics, you can take plus and minus, and then they cancel, and you get something neutral. In this color force, you can do the same thing. You can take a red and an anti-red. That makes neutral. But you can also take red, blue, green. That's neutral by itself. Just like on your TV screen, red, blue, and green make white. So that was part of the idea of the mnemonic. So it's a more complicated type of force that has three types of charges. And that's why we don't want to study it in this class. But it's nice to know about. Something to look forward to in graduate school. What exactly are entangled states? I don't think he said, he didn't use the word entangled in the book, did he? In one of the footnotes, I think. In the footnotes, huh? yeah. So. Uh, our example of an entangled state is when we combine, say we take <coughs> two electrons and put them in a spin zero state, and then I take them apart, I take this one to Mars, this one stays on Earth, but I do it without messing up their spins. So now, well, the fact that I put them in spin zero made them entangled, but that's not too, no one would give that a fancy name like entangled. But when I take one of them far away and don't mess up their spins, they're still in this spin zero state. And then people thought, we should come up with a cool name for that. So they're still in the spin zero state even though they're not in contact. And that's an example of an entangled state. So it means you, you can't specify the state of this one electron by itself, even though it's not interacting with anything else, maybe, because it's in a quantum state that's correlated with the spin of this guy. So you need to deal with both at the same time. So I think last quarter you did Bell's inequalities. So if I measure this one when it's far away, I instantly know what this guy's spin is. 
Oh, and it's time for our first stump the jump question about the many worlds theory. So how, by denying the collapse of the wave function, we are led to a theory in which every outcome exists. Stern-Gerlach experiment. So we emit a single silver atom from the oven and put it through our magnetic field and measure its spin. And let's say it started in the superposition of spin up and spin down, equal amounts. And then we measure its spin and we find that it's spin up. So according to what we've learned, that final wave function now is just spin up. So that's easy, right? Uh, but this bothers some people. So, um, Why well, because if you start talking about collapse of the wave function and consciousness, then it makes everything confusing. But if I just, this is what's happening. We start with this state and we end with that state, and that's what a measurement is. That's what quantum mechanics tell you. So now, people like to have interpretations and have pictures in their head of what's really happening. So there are a bunch of different interpretations of quantum mechanics. And this, uh, this simple picture that you start here and you end there, and call this the collapse of the wave function, is called the Copenhagen interpretation. There are other interpretations where you try to change what, uh, how you describe what's going on in the middle here. Um, so the, th one, the most important thing to know about interpretations is that you can have whatever interpretation you want but it's not going to change the answer. So if you have a valid interpretation of quantum mechanics, you will still get exactly the same answers as this Copenhagen interpretation or any other interpretation. So in that sense, interpretations are not physics, they're metaphysics, because you change, you change something, but it doesn't actually change anything that you can actually measure. So you're talking about things that are not observable. So there's a many worlds interpretation. So in the many worlds interpretation, what happens is that the universe splits into two universes when we do this measurement. Um, so there's a possibility that it's spin down. And what you do is you write the final wave function. So we started with spin up and spin down. Now we just say that <coughs> in this universe, the final state, in the initial state, there was a counter, uh, or a let's call it a measuring device. And the measuring device hasn't measured anything yet in the initial state. Then in the final state, there's another factor in the wave function for the measurement. But now, after we've made the measurement, uh, in the part of the amplitude where the thing was spin up, the measuring device said that it's spin up. And in part of the amplitude where it was spin down, the measuring device said that it's spin down. And now there are two different worlds, and this world can't talk to this world. So, <coughs> for practical purposes, you're in this world, then you just say that the wave function is spin up. And if you're in this world, then you say it's spin down. Then you never have to say the wave function collapsed because it just evolved uh, unitarily. And there were two pieces of it before, and there are two pieces of it afterwards. So <coughs> some people, that makes them happy. That every time there's a measurement, the universe splits into a bunch. And if you measure something more complicated that has lots of eigenvalues, then the universe has to split into a lot of different universes. If you measure something that has a continuous set of eigenvalues, then it has to split into an infinite number of universes. Um, does that make anyone happy here? No. Not really. So, so far we, hadn't we haven't said anything about consciousness, but you can put that in too. So, Consciousness wave function. 
before, you don't know what the spin is, and afterwards, you think it's spin up in that universe. And in this universe, obviously, afterwards you think it's spin down. This guy doesn't talk to that guy because he's in another world. So this guy thinks he measured it's been up, and this guy thinks he measured it's been down. So based on this, someone has proposed a test of many worlds interpretation, but you can only do it for yourself. So what you do is <laughs> you climb inside the Schrodinger cat ex experiment, you place the cat with yourself, and then either you live or you die. But in one, you, you have a 50-50 chance, but there's still some universe somewhere where you, you're alive, even if you died in one of them. Then just repeat the experiment over and over again. No matter how many times you repeat the experiment, there'll be a universe where you're alive, even though you're dead in the other 900. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, to anyone else watching this, you know, in all those other universes, they saw you die. And in this one universe, they saw you live. So in that universe, they just say, well, you were very lucky. But you personally, you're only alive in the one universe. So if you do the experiment many times and you're still alive, then you know that the many worlds interpretation is correct. <laughs> but no one who believes in the many worlds interpretation is volunteered to try the experiment. <laughs> <laughs> but they still write papers about it. Okay, so. Any questions about interpretations? Yeah. I guess this this interpretation and the Copenhagen interpretation too is based on this idea that you know we say this particle has a wave function, has a wave function. Um, based on the belief that the wave <coughs> function is something something real as opposed to uh, electromagnetic wave. Um, the wave function strikes me as a, it's a mathematical abstraction that describes the system, but it's not an actual wave propagating through space. Yeah, it's not an actual wave, because it can, it can be a function of you know, a zillion variables, and actual wave is just a function of position. So then, in, in a sense, I mean, interpretations are kind of how many angels on the head of a pin. I mean, it's yeah, trying so to preserve something that doesn't exist in the beginning. Yeah. Makes so good books. So what we want to learn in the course is how to calculate the answer that agrees with the experiment. The rest is uh, your own private uh, beliefs. You shouldn't discuss politics and interpretations of dinner with strangers. <laughs> um, anything else? So what I was going to weird thing about the Copenhagen interpretation is you sort of divide the world into quantum and classical, and you say the measuring device is classical. So that's another thing that bothers people. Uh, I think, personally, that the real answer is that if you treated every atom in this measuring device quantum mechanically, you would get the Copenhagen answer. It would just be very, very hard. And it's hard because, you know, in ordinary classical physics, when you have lots and lots of individual degrees of freedom, you can have irreversible behavior, or seemingly irreversible behavior, even though each individual atom can behave reversibly. You have 10 to the 23 atoms. They can entropy increases. But with a single atom, you can go backwards and forwards. So you'd have, I think if you knew how to analyze 10 to the 23 atoms quantum mechanically, you'd get the same answer. But it's too much work, and as far as we can tell, this approximation where you just say the measuring devices are classical gives the an correct answer. So it must it must be an exponentially good approximation. Okay. So let's get back to adding spins. So we're going to look at a state where there's two electrons or two fermions that are spin half. Like in hydrogen, there's a proton and an electron. We want to know the total spin. We have to add the spins together. So there are four possible 
states. You can have both the spins up, one up and one down, or the other one where the first one's down and the other one's up, or both down. And spin is supposed to be is, is the quantum analog of an angular momentum. So there should be a total spin, which is just the sum of spin one plus spin two. And there should be a total z component of that spin. So if I write the wave functions as chi one and chi two for the two particles, then the total z component of spin acting on chi one times chi two, you should be able to get that just by looking at spin operator one plus spin operator two acting on those guys. Spin operator one only does something to chi one. Spin operator two only acts on chi two. So if I continue writing that out. The total spin acting on chi 1, chi 2 should be the z component of spin operator 1 acting on chi 1 times chi 2 plus chi 1 times spin operator z component of spin operator 2 acting on chi 2. So this will just be h bar m1 chi1 times chi2. And this will give us h bar m2. So we'll just get the sum of the z components. Like we what else could we have got? So if we look back here, we just have to add up the z components. We get a half plus a half equals one. We get a half minus a half equals zero, or minus a half plus a half equals zero. And here we get minus a half minus a, a half plus minus one. So far, there's no surprises. It just works exactly like we would have thought, right? Now, the funny part is that in quantum mechanics, we know that when we combine two spin halves, we should get total spin one or total spin zero. So if we look at uh, that has total angular momentum 1. So the total angular momentum J quantum number is 1 and the Z component is also 1. If we act with a lowering operator on that guy, that will give us a state with J equals 1 and M equals 0. So we lower the Z component. And if we lower it again, get one minus one. So adding these two spin half guys, it's easy to see which state is going to correspond to total angular momentum one, z component one. There's only one possibility. This is the only guy that has the z total angular momentum z component equal to one. This is the only guy that has the total z component is minus one. What do we do with these two guys? Which one matches up with this guy? So it's a trick question because it's not going to be either one of those. It's going to be some linear combination. Because it's quantum mechanics, we can make linear superpositions. 
And what we want to do is figure out what linear combination of those two guys must correspond to this. And the way we can do that is construct the lowering operator for this particular case. So the lowering operator of the total spin is going to be the lowering operator for the first guy plus the lowering operator for the second guy. operator acting on the state of the quantum numbers s and m is h bar s times s plus 1 minus m times m minus 1 s m minus 1. So if we lower the state, that's s equals a half, m, m equals a half, we get a half times 3 halves minus half times minus a half, a half minus a half. This is three quarters plus a quarter. So we just get a factor of h bar in the lowered state. sub 1, sub 2. So the guy that's on the left will be 1, and the guy that's on the right will be 2. So there'll be a lowering operator acting on the first guy, and then we still have to multiply by the second guy. And there'll be a lowering operator acting on the second guy. So if you wanted to write the labels in, this is S1 minus. This is S2 minus. This guy only acts on particle 1. This guy only acts on particle 2. Should I write the indices, or is, is it clear? from here, lowering spin half guy gives us h bar times that spin down. On, acting with the lowering operator in the state where both the spins have their z components up, we get a mixture um, down up plus up down. And the important point is that the relative phase is plus one. So that's the linear combination of those two guys that corresponds to the total spin s equals one, m equals zero. equals 1, m equals minus 1, 
you know it can only be one thing. Spread the both down. We acted with the lowering operator on that guy. This is a check of the calculation. So if I lower the first one, I'll get down, down. If I lower the second one, I'll get zero. If I lower this first one, I'll get zero. If I lower the second one, I'll get down, down. So I'll get down, down, and then we normalize it properly. So now I've got three possible states that make up total spin one, but I started with four states over here. So shouldn't I have four states? I'm just reshuffling what I call them, making linear combinations. So there should be an orthogonal linear combination to that guy to complete the description. And that orthogonal combination is spin zero. Since there's only one guy in that state, since that was the triplet, this is the singlet. <coughs> so that guy, total s equals zero, n equals zero. Orthogonal linear, linear combination has to have a relative minus sign in it. So we can take it to be up, down, minus, down, up. And you can make up a convention for where you put the minus sign, or you can multiply the whole thing by phase and you do whatever you want. The overall phase doesn't matter. The relative minus sign matters. So if we take the overlap of this guy with that guy, is it clear why it's orthogonal? So taking this, the first up, with the first up, we'll give one. Second down, the second down gives one. And then <coughs> first down, the first down gives one. And second up, the second up gives one. But there's this minus sign here in the inner product that we have to carry through. We'll get 1 minus 1. So they're orthogonal. And <coughs> this guy is anti-symmetric on their interchange because of the relative minus sign. This guy is symmetric. And it's not a coincidence that this state was symmetric too. So acting with the lowering operator, didn't change the symmetry under interchange. So you guys still don't look convinced. So we can check it another way. So we could calculate the total spin squared. Since we know the Total spin is just sum of spin one and spin two. You just dot that into itself. And that should give the total spin squared. So that's S1 squared plus S2 squared. Plus two s one dot s two. Now we have to do some serious work. Remember that the x component of the spin is represented by h bar over two zero one one zero in the spin up spin down z basis. That's why is h bar over two. 0 minus i, i 0. And z component is the diagonal matrix, 1 minus 1.
if I take the X component of spin acting on spin up. the operator representing the x component of spin. Here's the vector representing spin up. So 0 times 1 is 0, 1 times 0 is 0, 1 times 1 is 1. of spin acting on spin up gives me h bar over 2 times spin down. The y component acting on spin up So what we're trying to do is calculate spin 1 dotted into spin 2 acting on our states. So spin 1 dotted into spin 2 acting on up-down. That should be x component of spin 1 acting on spin up. x component of spin 2 the x component, y component times the y component, z component times z component acting on that state. So x acting on spin up gives h bar over 2 spin down. x acting on spin down gives h bar over 2 spin up. Change this zero to one and this one to a zero. We still get an h bar over two and just flip where the one is. The y component acting on spin up gives i h bar over two spin down. And y component acting on spin down, when I flip this spin down, I'll get an extra minus sign. <coughs> and the z component is easy, because these are just the eigenstates of z. So I get h bar over 2 spin up, minus h bar over 2 spin down. So overall, I have an h bar squared over 4 in each term. And I got down, up, down, up, up, down. This is i times minus i. So I get 1 there and 1 there. So there's 2 times down, up, minus.
calculation of S1 dotted into S2, acting on the down up state. I'll get the SX acting on this times SX acting on that. So with h bar over 2 up, h bar over 2 down. And for the y components, I'll get a minus i h bar over 2 up times i h bar over 2 down. For the z components, I get minus h bar over 2 down from sz acting on this guy and h bar over 2 comes up from acting on this guy. So I get the same pattern. h bar squared over 4 2 times up down minus down up. So that sx and s y flip both of them. And the SC leaves them the same because they're eigenstates of SC. Now we can finally get the answer. Almost. So S1 dotted into S2 acting on that state that we called total S1 and total M0. Does anyone remember what it was? It was the symmetric up-down plus down-up. So there's an h-bar squared over 4. There's a 1 over root 2 from the normalization of the state. When we act on up-down, we get 2 times down-up minus up-down. And acting on down-up, we get 2 times up-down minus down-up. So we get 2 minus 1 is 1, 2 minus 1 is 1. With the 1 over root 2, gives us back what we have. And spin 1 dot spin 2, acting on the anti-symmetric state, is total s equals 0. have the same thing as this, but there's a relative minus sign. So then we'll get 2 plus 1, minus 1, minus 2. So we'll get minus 3 times what we had. S squared acting on the two states. So S squared acting on one zero should be S one squared plus S two squared plus two S one dot S two. So S1 squared acting on uh, a spin half guy. It's a half times a half plus one times h bar squared. This is the 
calculated S1 dot S2 gives h bar squared over 2. Changes is the S1 dot S2. We got minus three quarters. So times two is minus three halves. So we have three halves minus three halves equals zero, which is consistent with zero times zero plus one. So we did it right. components are pointing both up. So that state will have spin S1 plus S2. Since the maximum Z component, if it spin quantum number is S, then the maximum value of M is S1. I mean, the S quantum member is S1, maximum value of M is S1. If we have them both lined up, then the maximum value is S1 plus S2. And then we can always go through lowering operators. So we can reduce the total spin by 1. We can keep going down until we get to a state where their Z components are opposite. And that's going to be the difference of them. I'll put it absolute value because we don't know which one is bigger. But we know it's going to be a positive number. If we take a bigger one, we minus a smaller one. So we 
can also combine spin and orbital, orbital angular momentum. And since spin and angu orbital angular momentum obey the same commutation relations, uh, it's all the same thing. We do it the same way, whether we're combining two spins or two orbital angular momentums, or an orbital angular momentum and a spin, or six spins and four orbital angular momentums. It's just the same process over and over again. So uh, last year, people found this very confusing. So we're going to go over it again in the next lecture. And we'll go over it again all for the rest of the course. Well, after the midterm, when you are confused on the midterm and it doesn't work out, then we'll go over it again after the midterm. And then before the final, we'll go over it again. And hopefully, by the end, it won't be confusing. Any questions? So office hours. Uh, this week, I won't be here on Thursday. So let's have office hours on Wednesday at 4. And if you can't make it at that time, uh, email me, and we'll make a special appointment. <laughs>